I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, as we continue in our study of the Gospel of Mark. For those of you who don't have a Bible, I would encourage you to use the pew Bible in front of you so you can follow along. Mark 6, and we'll read verses 30 to 44. Verses 30 to 44. Let me read for us. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. With six shopping days to Christmas, I would have you listen carefully to the following statement often attributed to Benjamin Franklin. If your outgo exceeds your income then your upkeep will be your downfall. If your outgo exceeds your income, then your upkeep will be your downfall. Maybe you've heard this before, maybe not. But when you think about it, I think we all would agree that this is true. You all know this to be true. And I don't just mean intellectually. Of course we logically know That if we give more than we have, we will not be able to maintain. And when I say we know this to be true, there's another element in which we know this to be true. That is, experientially. We know what it's like to be overdrawn. Not just money, but overdrawn in time overdrawn in health and energy, overdrawn emotionally, overdrawn in our own efforts and our hopes, our ambitions. They even feel like we're just overdrawn of life in general itself. As we gather here today at this time of year, each one of us, every one of you, I think could probably give a testimony in one of three realms. You could either probably testify to a pastime in which you've been at your very end, where you didn't know if you were going to make it. Some of you would probably be able to give testimony to right now, a present season in which you have been asking questions like, if and how and I'm not sure. Or some of you, maybe those of you on the younger side of things, you will one day be able to share the concern of not having what you need, not knowing if 
there's going to be enough. Why is this so universally true? Why would this issue of being overdrawn, having need, feeling lack, insufficiency, why could that be so true of so diverse of a group? Simply, it's because we're all finite. We're limited. Our earthly lives, they're temporary. Thus, we know what it is to feel like we lack what we need. We know what it means to feel insufficient. We know what it is to fear that our life is out of control. So, we are limited and we obviously have needs, but the better question today is, what should we do about it? How are we to handle our endemic insufficiency? I'm glad you asked. Thankfully, it seems that Jesus, in this account, wanted to provide an answer to this question for his first followers as well. Now, before we look at this answer in our text, let me just remind you of where we've been in our previous studies. So far, it's been overwhelmingly clear that Mark has been recording these accounts of Jesus to share the good news. Mark 1, verse 1. The good news is this. That this Jesus was and is the Christ, the Son of God. For those of you who aren't familiar with the typical Christianese that we use, the term the Christ means the chosen one, the Messiah. In our modern idiom, we would use the hero that was expected from long ago. But not only a hero, a Messiah, but a divine Messiah. The Son of God. God, with the power to do only the things that God could do. And so Mark is telling us that this is good news, and I want you to see that this is the Christ, the Son of God, by giving you account after account of who Jesus is and what he has done. This is the motif of the book of Mark, if you will. He's been offering these testimonies of Jesus' divine identity, which in turn, interestingly, highlight the need for a response Namely, a response of faith and repentance. So do you see what's going on here in the book of Mark so far? It's like he's weaving a tapestry and the dominant color, if you will, would be the divine person and work of Christ, but weaved in with that is also our response to him, a response of faith, a response of repentance. So having just completed an account focusing on our response, last week we saw this Lesson on preparation for the mission. Mark once again picks up the dominant thread of the divine person and work of Jesus, specifically showing how his unexpected compassion and his unlimited power satisfy our deepest needs. That's the message of this text. This account of the feeding of the 5,000, it's this, Jesus cares and can meet our needs. He cares about our needs and he can meet our needs. He provides for our lack, he compensates for our insufficiency. Jesus is the need meter. So for those wondering how to handle need, let me be up front with you. And have you go ahead and like from the very beginning, I'm just going to go ahead and give it all away. This is what the text is calling for. As you look at Jesus and his capacity and compassion to meet needs, the text is going to invite you to simply trust in him. To depend on him. That's the ultimate direction that this story is pointed And hopefully you'll see that. As we begin our journey into the text, you'll notice that Mark seems to highlight two attributes of Jesus that encourage us to trust in him. The first attribute is his unexpected compassion. The unexpected compassion of Jesus encourages us to trust in him for our needs. Look at verses 30 to 34. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. 
For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now, let me pause here for a second. Before we get to the verse that actually talks about Jesus' compassion, Mark shows us why I would say that this compassion is unexpected. (laughs) I mean, it's very clear that in light of everything that's been going on in the book of Mark so far, these men had a desire or a need to rest. That was their intention. They wanted to rest. The pressures of the wartime-like mission that we had talked about last week in our time together had exhausted these men physically and relationally. And the, the text describes them as staggering in by their various teams. So there's like six different teams coming back to Jesus. And they're reporting to Jesus that we didn't even have time to eat. Have you ever been that busy? <laughs> That's where these men were. And so Jesus, tenderly and compassionately toward these men, he actually advocates for a time of rest for his sent ones, for his apostles, the ones that he had just sent out. And once again, he utilizes the boat. There's been a great tool for the disciples so far. This boat to get them away from the crowds. And notice Jesus' suggestion. He suggests that they go to what our text calls a desolate place. It's just simply a place characterized by isolation or desertion. As a noun, if you were to take the adjective and turn it into a noun, it would be a desert, a grassland. Uninhabited, and here's the key, free from people. They've been around people, they've been peopled out, and now the intention is that they're going to be away from people. I know people would like me to take a little diversion and make some application there, but I don't think that's the point of the text. But Jesus does seem to think that it's okay to every once in a while be away from people and spend time with his disciples in a more focused way. So Jesus is giving this this license. He's encouraging them, let's get away, let's find a lonely place. And then this happens. Verse 33. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns, and they got there ahead of them. So you have an intention to rest, followed immediately by an interruption from rest. (laughs) I can only imagine how this scene unfolds. Having never been to Galilee myself, it's not hard to imagine from looking at pictures or knowing the geography of the area how easy it would have been to spot Jesus and his followers. You remember that there was always a crowd wherever he went. So he leaves the shoreline from the boat. They're standing up on an embankment. Well, it's easy to see somebody out on a flat body of water. So wherever Jesus takes off to, unless he heads off for the horizon, they're going to be able to follow him. Well, based on where we know that Jesus is geographically, he's in the northwest corner of Capernaum. The desolate place that we find out about is actually also in the northwest shore of Capernaum. And instead of walking through all the towns, they decide to take this boat along the shoreline instead of taking it away. And naturally, as they're sailing along the shoreline, a few people turns into a few more. And they continue to follow him along the shoreline because they want access to him as well. They want the healing. They want the miracles. They want the teaching. The text doesn't say what it is they want, but it does describe this seemingly snowball effect of people who are building in mass, and naturally they're going to beat him to wherever he's going because they're on the shore and he's not. <laughs> They've got to come to shore at some point. And so, again, we imagine how... This exhausted entourage feels seeing this sight developing from the boat. (laughs) They're hoping for rest. And then you've got the mob reassembling and gathering. And I want you to imagine. If this was you. Exhausted. Overcrowded. Ready for a break. How would you greet or feel about a raving mob upon stepping on shore for your long-awaited vacation? Well, I don't know how you would respond, but verse 34 tells us how Jesus responded. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. 
And he began to teach them many things. He sees a great crowd. This term has been used several times in Mark so far. And for those of you who have been with us, you remember that the great crowd is no friend to Jesus. In chapter 1, verses 37 and verses 45, they interrupt his time of prayer. They interrupt his focus on preaching. In chapter 3, verses 7 through 12, it was the great crowd that threatened to literally crush Jesus, risking his very life. In chapter 3, verse 20, they prevent him from eating. I mean, this is not a great crowd. This is a mob. And how does Jesus respond to them? He had compassion on them. The noun form of this verb literally refers to the internal organs. It means to be moved inwardly. It's popularly understood as a a feeling of, of sympathy, a feeling of pity. One commentator called it tender mercy, sympathetic emotion. And I think we all know this feeling, no matter how tough we may be. When you've ever faced face-to-face true poverty or you've ever seen orphaned children or you know what it's like to behold a home destroyed from a fire or an earthquake or a hurricane or when you've faced grieving loved ones, you felt it inwardly, did you not? That deep compassion, this thing that that bothers you on the inside, our sovereign, powerful Lord felt that compassion for this mob. But the question that I ask is why? What is it that moved Jesus to visceral, emotional response? The text tells us It was because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Like sheep without a shepherd. While indeed there's a note of tenderness and care and the shepherding metaphor, I think it'd be good for you to understand and know that Jewish readers would have primarily associated the image of a sheep without a shepherd as a lack of leadership. A lack of leadership. Not just a lack of companionship. But this metaphor, as it's used throughout the Old Testament, always conveyed the horrors associated with the lack of a leader. Numbers 27, 17, Israel's lack of leadership after Moses is characterized by a sheep without a shepherd. 1 Kings 22, 17 portrays Ahab's army after his death in the middle of a battle as the army being a sheep without a shepherd. Ezekiel 34 verses 5 and 6 describe God's people under failed leadership as sheep without a shepherd. Zechariah 13 verse 7 forecasts the helplessness of God's people when the Messiah will finally be taken away. And you know what metaphor is used? A sheep without a shepherd. It is a lack of leadership. This is what bothered Jesus. Jesus sees a whole people without direction, without purpose, without a leader... And he feels the same way about that mob that you would feel about an orphan toddler or a stray puppy. Something needs to come along and give this thing some guidance or it will not make it. This isn't some desperate thing. This isn't some despot who is looking to rule and control people tyrannically. Sometimes when we talk about the sovereignty of Christ, we put it in those terms where people think of it that way. They think of the power of Jesus to rule over their life as something oppressive and harmful. And yet here we see the true expression of the term authority. It comes from the word author. Someone who authors life. Jesus is not some type of desperate despot. He is a benevolent ruler and he wants to provide direction for this mob this people who who are lacking a leader and so how does he remedy it how does he meet their deepest need the text just says this he began to teach them many things 
How does he do it? He teaches. Since the mob most needed leadership and provision, Jesus leads and provides for their deepest needs through teaching on what? It's teaching on the kingdom. So Justin, where do you see that? I don't see the word kingdom anywhere in the text. Well, as we would do with any book that we would read, we have to let the author define his terms. So far, Mark has already defined his terms. When he talks about teaching and preaching, we know from Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, that Jesus taught and preached what? The kingdom of God and man's response to it, repentance and faith. So allowing Mark to define his terms, we know that Jesus wasn't just giving general moral lessons about how to lead a better life, but he is telling them about his reign and the goodness of their repentance if they would only trust in him. That's the message that they needed, and the text says that he taught them many things. The the little particle there should actually be translated as an adverb. It's the idea that he taught them for a long time. Now, I'm not just justifying hour-long sermons, but I am saying that Jesus did it too. (laughs) Presumably, he teaches this. He's the coming king. You can come under his blessed reign through repentance and faith. That's true then, and that's true now. But before I draw out the practical implications of this, we need to stop and think about something. Say it this way, you will not understand how Jesus intends to meet your needs if you don't understand what your needs really are. We all know this as parents at this time of year when your kids tell you, I need this for Christmas. We have the same errant interpretation of the word need as our kids do. We need this, we need that, but we don't really understand what the word need means. For those of you who are more theological types, the first person to ever challenge me on this was Jonathan Edwards himself in his book, The Bondage of the Will, where he talks about the term necessity as being that which is vital to life. The point is that if you take something away from it, that thing would cease to exist That's the kind of need that Jesus meets, the thing that that matters the most. See, what we typically talk about when we talk about needs are felt needs. They're, They're presentation problems. They're things that deal with time. They operate in the realm of time. Um, If you even follow Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you find things like the need to leave a legacy or the need to fulfill our potential or the need to be all I can be or the need for friendship or the need for intimacy or the need for family or the need for personal security or even physical health, financial security. Most basically, we would say we need what? Air, water, food. But is it possible That there's a need that's not accounted for in our own feelings and impressions? I would submit to you today that as you read through the Bible, it will actually expose you to a deeper need. A root problem, a, a real need. Something that deals not just with time, but eternity. And that would be this, nourishment for your soul. That's a real need. Rescue from God's wrath protection from spiritual darkness, friendship and family, not just with others, but with God himself, an impact for eternity. This is what Jesus actually offers. This is the need that he desires to meet. And so Jesus cares first and foremost about our most significant need. Notice the way that this whole story is arranged. It doesn't start off with him giving out bread and then saying, all right, now let me tell you about your real need. He starts off meeting the need as soon as he steps off the boat, and that need was they were not under his reign. They should have been under his reign. That is the most important. That is what Jesus offers. Look, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want you to know, and I'm saying this with compassion, that he sees your out of control and purposeless and aimless life, and he weeps. So how dare you critique my life that way? Listen, I was just in a Sunday school class in which I heard six people in a row proclaim to this very thing before they found Christ. I know this 
feeling and you don't have to feel that way. Jesus has come to provide leadership to your crazy, out of control, purposeless life. I'm not criticizing you. I'm trying to help you. Jesus wants to rule. He's moved by the plight of your own self-rule, your foolish and sinful decisions, your self-destructive behavior, your prideful resolve to refuse His grace and potentially spend eternity in hell. Relational, financial, physical, emotional, domestic anarchy are all byproducts of a prime product. And that is your refusal to submit to His glorious reign. So what would you do? How do you fix that? It's not a class on your marriage. It's not a class on finances. It's not a pill that I can give you that will calm down your emotions. It's simply understanding that Jesus came and lived the righteous life that you couldn't live. He died the death you deserve to die. He rose again to provide life eternal. And if you would turn from your own way of doing things and trust in Him alone, you can be saved. But this isn't just for those of us who are non-Christians. This is for followers of Christ as well. Can I invite you just to quickly turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. And if I still hear pages flipping, I'm going to read it anyway. You can just give up and listen. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16 is good for us all as believers where it says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Notice that. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our what? Weakness. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of what? Need. Christians still have need too. Where do those needs come from? They're remnant expressions of our own rebellion and living in a fallen world. Surely there was an initial moment where we submitted ourselves to Christ's reign and yet we still feel like we have need. It's because we don't always follow Christ perfectly. And because we live in a world of people who do not follow Christ perfectly. And so while we initially trust in Him, we still continue to trust in Him which is what we'll be talking about on Wednesday night. See, I'm telling you that Jesus meets your needs today because He cares. He cares. That's what I want to get to. You're not a bother to Him. As powerful as He is, He wants to shower His grace upon you. So for those of you who are here today, trust in His compassion and just keep trusting Him for those things that you're still trusting Him for. Keep relying on His care. Are you in a dark night of the soul? He cares. Do you struggle over some type of sinful stronghold? He still cares. And you should still trust Him. Despair, loneliness, anxiety, especially what I prayed for earlier, associated with this time of year? He cares. Continue to trust Him. He wants to meet the deepest need. He wants to continue to give eternal light and spiritual victory and joy and fellowship and peace. And so in light of that, we must continue to rely on His gentle and shepherding care. Look, all I would have you do if you're struggling with any of these things today is to remember the gospel itself. When you read Romans 8, actually I would encourage you, make a little thing on your to-do list. Read Romans 8 this week. When you read through Romans 8, you'll see that there were people in Rome, obviously, who were dealing with these same pressures as well. And verse 26 of chapter 8 talks about our weakness. And then when it gets down to verse 32, I love this phrase. It says, He who did not spare his own son, shall he not freely give us all things? The way that Paul intended for Christians to deal with problems in the present life 
It's actually through reminding themselves of the great problem that was already met in Christ. It goes like this. Jesus met your greatest eternal need by dying on the cross. Shall he not meet all other needs? You have to constantly remind yourself that the biggest things have been taken care of in Jesus. So we can trust Jesus to meet our needs because of his unexpected compassion. He actually cares. Yet there's another attribute of Jesus here that invites us to trust him for our needs. And that's his unlimited power. Not only does he care to meet our needs, but he can meet our needs. The unlimited power of Jesus encourages us to trust him for our needs. Look at verses 35 to 44. We'll look at the first few verses. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said five and two fish. Now do you notice what's going on in these few sentences The disciples are concerned for a secondary need, right? Jesus is meeting a primary need. They're concerned about a secondary need. Their secondary need is food. I read an interesting article the other day. It was a little spoof, and it recorded a a guy who actually died in a service because the sermon went 15 minutes over. He died of starvation. It didn't really happen. (laughs) But you would think, (laughs) talking to some people, That if the service ends five minutes late, that they will perish. It makes me wonder, though, in light of, look, I've been that way. It makes me wonder that when the disciples come to Jesus, I don't think that they're actually concerned about the people. (laughs) I think that they're ready for the vacation to start, if you will. Conveniently enough, Jesus, it's getting to be mealtime. It's going late. You've been going long. They're hungry. (laughs) A.K.A. we're hungry. But what Mark is really just upfront about is the weakness of the disciples. I mean, you see it exhibited in their understanding. I mean, Jesus is teaching at length. They're missing their supper. And foolishly, I mean, I don't know how they had this type of relationship with Jesus. It becomes clear as we're reading through the book of Mark, by the way, that they don't fully understand who he is yet, as evidenced by a statement like this. Disciples, speaking to creator God in the flesh, say, hey, you need to stop and You need to send them out to get themselves something to eat. It's natural. Notice that there's no charity, though. It's not like we're going to get them something to eat. They need to get themselves something to eat. But then you see the weakness of the disciples highlighted in Jesus' statement. (laughs) Jesus responds back, and the Greek text is emphatic. You give them something to eat. Now, why do you think he says that? He knows they don't have anything. They were all in the same boat. What does he intend for them to do with this? They may have had the power to exercise demons and heal the sick, but one of the things that was not given to them was the power to create something out of nothing. That's the power that only God has. What is he inviting them to do? He is inviting them to be reminded of their own insufficiency. Only God could feed this many people. And the weakness of the disciples is further displayed by the fact that they only think in human terms. They reply with sarcasm. Are we supposed to spend 200 denarii or 200 days wages? Look at Matthew 20 to find out what a denarii is worth. 200 days wages is somewhere between two-thirds and three-fourths of an annual income to feed this many people? But ultimately, in asking them to examine their meager resources, he hints that he will take their weakness to show off his strength. And so in contrast to all the weakness of the disciples, I want you to notice the power of Jesus in verses 39 and 40, where he says, he com- the text says, Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups, by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And he divided two fish among them all. Now what happened here? 
First, he organized everybody so they could get food. There is a practical expression here of just saying, all right, get them in 50s and 100s, because when you get a bunch of hungry people together, it gets violent. So, something supernatural also takes place. They do it. (laughs) Could you imagine speaking to a group of thousands of people and saying, all right, everybody, I want you to divide yourselves into groups of 50 to 100 so we can divide food. I think everybody would be fighting to get to the front. I don't think anybody would exercise the responsibility to make sure there were 50 or 100 people in a group. But somehow it happens. And I think it's because of the good and gentle reign of Jesus. He has this ability to speak. And they listened. So they're organized. Jesus receives the meager provisions. Or they find them in the boat. Or they find them from a little boy. Other accounts telling us it's not much. A loaf of bread at that time isn't like a piece of wonder bread. I mean, it is literally about six to eight inches wide and about an inch thick. It looks like a pita. So you've got five of those things, and then you've got two pickled fish. And that's somehow going to feed this many people. And what's so funny about this is this miracle is unique because somehow Jesus just continues to like generate matter from these little things. The text doesn't say how it happens. But one of the things that the text does make clear, it switches to an imperfect tense showing us that Jesus was continually breaking the bread, continually breaking the bread. It's the only thing that's emphasized in this little sequence. Somehow he just kept breaking the bread, and I don't know if it just kept reappearing, but he just keeps giving it out, and the first law of thermodynamics is contradicted somehow. I mean, basically, the first law says that energy cannot be transformed from one form to another Uh, can be transformed from one form to another, but it cannot be created or destroyed. Layman's terms, it means something like this. You can't create something from nothing, and yet somehow this happens. Five pieces of bread, two pieces of fish, aren't enough to feed thousands, and yet it does. And then you just have this picture of these disciples continually coming back, this reminder that they would need to be satisfied continually through his power. Do you notice the shepherding imagery that's here, by the way? Why would Mark mention green grass? (laughs) It just seems such an odd thing to remember. Well, one, it it smells of an eyewitness account. But secondly, doesn't it not recall one of the most famous passages in all of the Bible, Psalm 23, verse 2, where it talks about the green grass that the gentle shepherd would lead us to? There's even another hint at a shepherding metaphor as it uses the term that he commanded them. It's it's not just he told them, but it's actually like a military type of command. He exercised authority over them. He commanded them. They sat down on green grass. They're being fed by their leader. But there's an even bigger picture here. There's a bigger picture in this text than just a shepherd. But it's the whole leadership metaphor from earlier that was missing. To the Old Testament Jew, reading or hearing this account for the first time, they could immediately and easily think about another time that Israel was desperate for leadership and provision, and that was in their own exodus. And there are several things that Mark intentionally places into this account that parallel the the earlier wilderness wanderings account from 4,000 years previous. And I would say that this is a big deal. This is a huge deal. This is the only miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels outside of the resurrection itself. There's a reason why Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John all wanted their readers to understand this miracle. Because this one portrays Jesus to be the greater leader that Israel never had. One greater than Moses himself. When Moses was in the wilderness, same term that's used here in the Septuagint by the way, he fed them. Or God fed them. But at that time, Exodus 16 verses 14 and 15 tells us that he kept giving them this gift of manna. Just as Jesus was giving bread. And just as Moses led so, and divided the people into groups to feed them, so also Jesus led and divided the people into groups to feed them. And like Moses and Jesus, there is this wonderful miracle taking place, but there's something different here. There's something new happening in this feeding, something different. In Exodus 16, you may remember that they could only get what they could get for that day. They were not allowed to have surplus. They were not allowed to have extra. Do you remember what would happen if they did? It would turn into mold. 
And yet here in verse 42, it says, And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and a fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Now notice the scope of what's going on here. All ate. Um, one liberal commentator tried to say that, well, this was just actually an event of sharing. As Jesus began to share provisions, other people started realizing, oh, we need to share provisions too, and everybody was fed. But remember, these people just scurried here from the hillside. It wasn't a planned trip. They just make it here, and somehow, 5,000 men were fed. Now, the Greek word for man there is man. It's not mankind in general. It is the like, gender-specific man. So if there's 5,000 men there, anybody in an Eastern context would know that women and children were probably along too. It'd be easy to estimate that there were 10,000 people there. MacArthur would estimate that there's up to 25,000 people there. It doesn't matter. We're talking about a lot of people, and all of them ate. And notice this. It says... All of them were satisfied. The word for satisfied can also be translated stuffed or gorged. You know that feeling. It's like Thanksgiving satisfied. That's not in the Greek text, by the way. I'm using an American analogy. But that feeling of having ate too much, that's actually the word that's being used here. It was just everybody just shared a little bit and they just got along. Everybody's satisfied. And here's where things get better than what was ever offered in the Old Testament because the text doesn't stop at verse 42. It continues to verses 43 and 44. It's not just the scope that everybody ate and the satisfaction that they were gorged and stuff, but there's a surplus here, and that is that there were 12 baskets full left over. He didn't just provide like Moses. He provided in a way better than Moses could ever provide. This is the leader that the children of Israel were looking for all along. Now for the careful reader, there's something missing here. From all the other accounts that we've looked at so far in the book of Mark, when Jesus did something amazing, do you remember what happened? The crowd responded. Here we don't have any response from the crowd. This is the first time. Which shows us that the crowd may have not even known where this food was coming from. This miracle wasn't for the crowd. This miracle was for the disciples. This miracle was for his followers. When you read down to verse 52, by the way, you'll see that. Jesus intended for this miracle to teach his disciples something in particular. What was it that he wanted to teach them? It's simply, I not only care to meet the need, but I can meet the need. Because they were constantly fearing, and he wants them to know that I have unlimited power to meet your needs. Trust me, come to me with your needs. Spurgeon's exhortation for us to rely on his infinite supply helps fill this idea out. And I want to give credit to our friend Cullen Walker who read the scriptures for us today who shared this with me. Let me read it to you. Jesus is the son of the highest and has unbounded wealth. It is shameful to doubt. Omnipotence and distrust of his all-sufficiency. The cattle on a thousand hills will suffice for our hungriest feeding. And the granaries of heaven are not likely to be emptied by our eating. If Christ were only a water tank, we might soon exhaust his fullness. But who can drain a fountain? Myriads of spirits have drawn their supplies from him, and not one of them has murmured at the scantiness of his resources. Isn't that great? The question naturally is, who else could we look to for our needs? If you're here today and you're tired of the tension and the high blood pressure and the sleeplessness associated with your personal limitation, if you're ready to ditch the anxiety and the fear and the worry and the doubt and the insecurity of relying on fallible men or a fledgling government, I would invite you to trust this compassionate and powerful Jesus. 
See, the things that I mention are symptoms. Your need is Jesus. The miracle here simply served as a, as a down payment of the greater satisfaction that would come for all those who follow him. John 10.10 10 reminds us that Jesus came so that we would have life and life more abundantly. Christians need to be reminded of this, just like the disciples. I say this kindly, and if you need me to fill this out more personally, I'd be happy to do so. But I would have us all remember that there aren't enough prescriptions or procedures on this planet to put you at peace apart from dependence upon Jesus. Maybe the thing that you need to do this week is to remind yourself of the promises in Romans 8 verses 31 to 39. Maybe you should wake up each day this week and start off with Isaiah 55 that we read earlier. To remind yourself of God's generous provision. Now I know that there are some of you, because you're like me, it's easy for you to say, oh, you know what, I know this already. I'm trusting in Jesus. I don't have any medical problems right now. I'm, I think I've got my life under control. Look, praise God, I'm glad you're there. I would have you remember, though, that not everybody is there. If you are there and you think, you know what, I'm trusting in Jesus. Everything is okay with me right now. Let me ask you this. Who do you go for for other people's needs? Okay, you're fine, admittedly. But don't you know people who aren't? Needy people? Brothers and sisters in Christ? I mean, I'm talking to those of you who are faithfully ministering in the lives of others and those of you who have personally found all your needs met in Christ. I'm glad you're here. I think that's many people in our church. But I would have you remember... And never forget that it is easy to be overwhelmed, not just by our own needs, but by the needs of those around us. You ever feel that way? Do you know what it's like to have wayward family members who seem to be ruining their lives in eternity? Or to know other church members or Christians who are enduring the bleakest of hardships, and every time you're reminded of it, you're like, I just wish I could do something to help them. I, I don't have it. I regularly hear your stories on Wednesday night, by the way, when we pray together as a church. There isn't a Wednesday night that goes by where I don't hear somebody talk about the need, not in their own life, but a need in someone else's life that they're looking to meet. And there's just this natural desperation like, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to fix it. Hear me well. Jesus is the need meter, not you. Not you. Just as the disciples had to keep coming to Jesus for the needs of others, so also we must keep coming to Jesus for the needs of others. They need the provision of Christ. You could do two things very practically to help them. Number one, point them to Him. Point them to Him. That's the best thing that you could do. You know how to remind yourself of the gospel? Great. Remind them of the gospel. And then secondly, draw your strength from Him. You know what? It is exhausting to be meaningfully involved in the messy lives of others. Keep up that work and draw your sufficiency from Christ. This entire passage reminds me of a story I first heard from Warren Wiersbe a few years ago in which there is this poor woman um, who lived a, a destitute life in a little village in Great Britain. And she never had much of anything. It's reported that in her village, even water was scarce during that particular time. Until one day, someone finally took her to the Atlantic Ocean. She had never seen it with her own eyes. And as she beheld its vastness and the incessantly rolling waves, she exclaimed, it sure is good to see something that there's plenty of. For those of us who know and feel and experience the limitations and insufficiencies of life, this passage points us to an all-powerful Jesus and shows us that in His power and in His compassion that there is something that there is plenty of. There's no lack. 
Now, I want you to notice something. I said his power and compassion. See, the illustration of the ocean and its vastness breaks down because the ocean itself is impersonal. Jesus isn't just powerful, the text tells us, but he is compassionate. (laughs) He not only can meet our need, but he cares to meet our need. He is both sensitive to our needs and strong enough to meet them. He is good and powerful. He is compassionate and capable. Therefore, let us once more trust in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I would have you do this in very practical ways. Three of them, and I'll mention them briefly. One, depend on Him in repentance and faith. If you're here today and you haven't yet trusted in Jesus... All you need to do is realize you can't do it. Jesus can. You have a sin problem. He's all for salvation. Depend on Him. Turn from your way. Trust in His. And if you don't know what that means, ask one of us. We'd be happy to help you with it. There's another way that you can express dependence, and that is in prayer. For those of us who are believers, the most tangible way you can express your dependence upon Christ is in prayer. The most tangible way you can express your refusal to depend upon Christ is in worry. That's why Philippians 4 says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your requests be made known unto God. You notice the alternatives? Either worry or pray. And when something worries you, pray about it. We express our dependence in prayer and repentance. And then finally, I think we can express dependence joyfully today in praise. We can praise Jesus publicly. Maybe for some of you, the best thing that you could do this week is tell someone else. Think about them right now. Tell someone how Jesus has met your deepest needs and how he could potentially meet their needs too. Or maybe the most practical thing is for us all just to sing now and praise him for how he meets our needs so graciously. And I think that's what we'll do. We're going to close by praising Him in song, expressing our dependence on Him as we sing. And the song that we're going to sing is All Glory Be to Christ. And this is going to be our closing prayer together. I want you to sing this as a prayer. When we're finished singing, you're dismissed. But as Andrew comes to lead us, please stand and let's sing All Glory Be to Christ. <laughs>